Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And the subject of today's episode is uh, the center of so many myths and stories and rumors that it's a little bit hard to separate fact from fiction, though we will do our best to make sure we hit the actually documented elements of his story. Uh, there are accounts of teleportation involved, alchemy, even immortality that swirl around this person who is the Count of Saint-Germain. You'll also see him referenced in uh, the foreign version of Comte de Saint-Germain. Uh, and did an immortal actually walk among the aristocrats of Europe in uh, the 18th century courts? I'm going to say odds are no, but he has some interesting and compelling uh, facets to his story. He does seem to have perhaps convinced many people that he did. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, allegedly could make himself invisible. He, uh, according to some accounts, knew Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Some accounts even put him at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, however, uh, he could also turn lead into gold, apparently, or something close enough, according to one actual account that was written in the letter. And we'll talk about that uh, more specifically. But what was the real deal with this guy? Uh, was he a charlatan? Was he an actual legit mystic? Or was he just sort of a madman caught up in his own lies? I- I'm not sure that the truth has to include or exclude any or all of those, because it's really... There's a lot of stuff involved uh, and many layers and weirdness. I made a weird noise. <laughs> that's how that that's how convinced I am, I am that one of the things well, in this yeah. list of possibilities is not the right one. I am generally a very skeptical person, so I, you know, suspect that uh, not the real deal. But that's you know, yeah, mm-hmm. I, that is. I'm kind of an Occam's razor kind of gal. <laughs> well, I, I am the. Uh, the extreme claims require extreme evidence. Yeah. Which, you know, some guy wrote this in a journal does not count. Right. Uh, so normally we would do early history on people and we'll kind of, but when we get to the like, when was he born? Well, not um, sure. It's really tricky in this particular one because there are different stories and in some cases, no story. Most reputable sources that try to put his birth somewhere on the timeline put it somewhere between 1710 and 1712. And there were times late in the Count's life that he claimed that he was the son of the Transylvanian prince Ferenc II, Rakozi, who led a Hungarian uprising called the Kurik Revolt against the Habsburg Empire. And Rakozi had several sons, one of whom died as a child. And those who believe that Count Saint-Germain was the Transylvanian prince's son claimed that that death, the death of the child, had been faked to protect the young boy in the midst of this political tumult. And mm, this version of the Count's origins, if you buy into that, actually puts his birth a little bit earlier, around 1690. I think there's a lot bit earlier. <laughs> it does. But, you know, he was ageless, much like Dick Clark. So <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Dorian Gray. <laughs> I, I went with a less impressive and more pop culture reference. Yes. So he first appeared in historical documentation much later in 1745. He was mentioned in a letter from Horace Walpole, who was the fourth Earl of Orford and the author of the uh, horror fiction, The Castle of Otranto, which is like one of the first uh, horror novels in English. Yeah. I read it before. 
go. You can, I'm sure you can find it for free on the internet. Go oh, read yes. it. Um, so uh, this letter was from Horace Walpole to Horace Mann, who was a London merchant and diplomat, not to be confused with the American educator by the same name that he was around about 100 years later. Mm-hmm. So the two Horaces maintained a friendship through correspondence for more than four decades. And on December 9th, 1745, Walpole wrote the following. We begin to take up people, but it is with as much caution and timidity as women of quality begin to pawn their jewels. We have not ventured upon any great stone yet. The provost of Edinburgh is in custody of a messenger. And the other day, they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count Saint-Germain. He has been here these two years and will not tell who he is or whence, but professes that he does not go by his right name. He sings, plays on the violin wonderfully, composes, is mad, and not very sensible. He is called an Italian, a Spaniard, a Pole. A somebody that married a great fortune in Mexico and ran away with her jewels to Constantinople. A priest, a fiddler, a vast nobleman. The Prince of Wales has had unsatiated curiosity about him, but in vain. However, nothing has been made out against him. He is released, and what convinces me that he is not a gentleman, stays here and talks of his being taken up for a spy. So, the Count was arrested and released, and then opted to hang out and talk about his arrest and how he was suspected of being a spy. He had been suspected of being a Jacobite agent, but was released when nobody could find any evidence of it. And in 1746, roughly a year after this letter was written, so at this point he's been uh, in London for about three years, a performance of musical compositions by the Count took place. And those musical pieces were also published at the same time. And the Count was apparently genuinely talented as a composer. He wrote at least 40 Italian arias, seven solos for violin, and six trio sonatas, as well as other things. But those are kind of some of the high point of his uh, CV as a composer. Yeah, the However, uh, after uh, this this musical um, composition publication, he vanishes from the record. Either he left London or kind of faded into the background for a while. And during his time on the DL, uh, he's said to have been in Vienna for a while and then in India. And I should point out, as we talk about kind of these kind of major uh, turning points in his story of him being in a, a location, he was allegedly kind of constantly traveling. So even if he was kind of setting up regular um, um, house in some particular space. He was also probably going out and visiting many other places at the same time. Allegedly. <laughs> uh, then he appeared in Versailles in 1748. Uh, the Count next appeared in Versailles in 1748. And Charles-Louis-Auguste Fouquet, Duc de Belle-Isle, made Saint-Germain's introductions at court, presenting this mysterious count as an expert in dye and textiles. And this being the court of France in the 18th century, that was basically enough said. Uh, you know, someone who can make beautiful things, you're in. Right. And so for two years, he made himself extremely comfortable in French society. He went to parties and charmed everybody there. He started dropping little hints about being a very extraordinary individual. He would give away diamonds, saying that he could just make them. He would play the harpsichord and the violin with very great skill. He would give beauty advice to the ladies of the court. And he eventually gained the ear of King Louis XV himself. And one of Saint-Germain's habits was to set up a lab wherever he went, which is where he would do things like mix beauty elixirs for the ladies. He would dye fabrics and other media. And he would also work his alchemy. Uh 
And it's interesting because he was apparently quite a good chemist. Like he really was good at like textile dyeing and coming up with different paints. Uh, one story says that he made a paint that was odor free, which at the time was un- completely unusual. It's unusual <laughs> now. <laughs> um, but then there was always also this alchemy element to it. And he's said to have removed a flaw from deep within a diamond for King Louis the Fifteenth, without diminishing its size. But he would never disclose how he achieved this feat. I have an idea. You do? It's that he did not do this for real. <laughs> I'm extremely skeptical about his whole story. <laughs> like, I have an idea. No. <laughs> yep. So, um, during this time... He allegedly had an exchange with an elderly countess who had accompanied her husband to Venice in the early 1700s. This countess asked him whether his father had been in Venice in 1710, and he is said to have replied, No, madame, it is very much longer since I lost my father, but I myself was living in Venice at the end of the last and the beginning of this century. I had the honor to pay you court then, and you were kind enough to admire a few barcaroles of my composing, which we used to sing together. And the countess was rather befuddled at this, and she told the count, no, no, uh, this could not be the case. The man she was speaking of had been in his mid-40s, and that was the age that the count appeared before her there in the court of France. And again, she's referencing 1710, and this is, you know, in the 1750s. And uh, he replied to her just simply, Madam, I am very old. I totally saw this conversation in, uh, in one of the Lord of the Rings extended editions. <laughs> He's one of the Dunedines. So basically, any time that the Count was questioned about his past, particularly his childhood, he would get into these astounding tales or divert the conversation to another topic. And this really got tongues wagging and created all this speculative gossip around him. Yeah, which in the court of France at this time, I mean, ah, that's awesome. publicity. Yeah. Uh, and while he was in France and rubbing shoulders with royalty, he had this other weird quirk, which added to this sort of cloud of speculation, which is that he allegedly never ate in public. Uh, though according to some accounts, he would occasionally inf- eat in front of people, but it was only oatmeal or lean cuts of chicken. Uh, and in some accounts, he tells people that this is all he eats rather than them actually witnessing it. But this sen- just added to his sensational reputation, which just grew super rapidly. Also growing very rapidly was his responsibility to the king. Uh, King Louis the Fifteenth started sending him on missions, sometimes of a rather unclear nature, and this is what led to rumors that he was the king's personal spy. It also drew the scorn of lots of other people. Yeah, you couldn't really be the king's favorite without making people angry. Uh, and the Duc de Choiseul was particularly suspicious of the seemingly mystical count. And there was also um, a matter of heightened tensions because this was all going on at the height of the Seven Years' War between England and France. So for him to be a secret spy with the ear of the king during this time, just it was a very tense time. And it made people that should have been important in state affairs kind of left out of the loop of these doings, and that was an irritant. While Saint-Germain was traveling to Amsterdam on business for the king, Choiseul and the Count of Afri were exchanging letters about what he was doing. Saint-Germain had told the Count of Afri that Amsterdam's finances were in just a terrible state and that he alone could fix them. He pitched this scheme to do so, which involved lots and lots of moving parts and the establishment of a fund for France to be bankrolled by the Dutch. 
He also told Afri that he had made all these plans without the knowledge of uh, the higher authorities, claiming that he had been sent with this general sort of mission to negotiate peace between the warring countries. Sounds pretty shady. Yeah, uh, Afri was there in Amsterdam and he was receiving this man and talking to him and being like, wait, you want to do what? Uh, and in the meantime, uh, Choiseul had also intercepted this letter from Saint-Germain to the Marquise de Pompadour, who was King Louis XV's chief mistress. And in this letter, Saint-Germain deeply mischaracterized his connections at The Hague. Uh, so while Choiseul and Afri were comparing notes, they did not match up to what uh, the Count was saying was going on when they saw this letter that he had written the Marquise. Uh, and this letter, combined with the accounts from the Count of Afri, were really quite damning for Saint-Germain. And a letter that went from Choiseul to Afri on March 19, 1760. Uh, this, is, this is what was written down. Sir, I send you a letter from Monsieur de Saint-Germain to the Marquise de Pompadour, which in itself will suffice to expose the absurdity of the personage. He is an adventurer of the first order who is, moreover, so far as I have seen, exceedingly foolish. I beg you immediately on receiving my letter to summon him to your house and to tell him from me that I do not know how the king's minister in charge of the finance department will look on his conduct with regard to this object, but that, as to myself, you are ordered to warn him that if I learn that far or near, in much or little, he chooses to meddle with politics, I assure him that I shall obtain an order from the king that on his return to France he will be placed for the rest of his days in an underground dungeon! Exclamation <laughs> point. It goes on. You will add that he may be quite sure that these intentions of mine concerning him are as sincere as they will surely be ex- executed if he give me the opportunity of keeping my word. After this declaration, you will request him never again to set foot in your house, and it will be well for you to make public and known to all the foreign ministers, as well as the bankers of Amsterdam, the compliment that you have been commanded to pay to this insufferable adventurer." Yeah, uh, Saint-Germain did not return to France. Nope. <laughs> uh, he fled to England after this all went down. But he did not stay there for terribly long. Uh, and before we go on to his next crazy adventure, do you want to take a moment and hear a word from our sponsor? Yes, I do. Super de duper. So now, uh, back to the illustrious count. In 1763, Saint-Germain turned up in Belgium. And this time he was going by the name of Sermon. Uh, you may recall that I mentioned in the Rose Bertin episode, people would change their names frequently at this time. Uh, and the count was a pro at that. He was constantly going by different names. Uh, and he purchased a parcel of land there in Belgium and he set up a lab. And his intent was to enter into a contract with the Belgian government to provide them certain proprietary chemical processes that he had developed. So some of these things like, you know, specific dyes and paints that he had been working on. One of the most important aspects of this attempt at a business deal with Belgium comes in the form of a letter sent by an official who met with Saint-Germain slash Sermon. This official, Carl Cobenzel, sent the following in a note to Prince Kaunitz, the prime minister. And he says, it was about three months ago that the person known by the name of Comte de Saint-Germain passed this way and came to see me. I found him the most singular man that I ever saw in my life. 
I do not yet precisely know his birth. I believe, however, that he is the son of a clandestine union in a powerful and illustrious family. Possessing great wealth, he lives in the greatest of simplicity. He knows everything and shows an uprightness, a goodness of soul worthy of admiration. Among a number of his accomplishments, he made, under my own eyes, some experiments, of which the most important were the transmutation of iron into a metal as beautiful as gold, and at least as good for all goldsmiths' work, the dyeing and preparation of skins carried to a perfection which surpassed all the Moroccos in the world, and the most perfect tanning." The dyeing of silks carried to a perfection hitherto unknown. The like dyeing of woolens. The dyeing of wood in the most brilliant colors penetrating through and through, and the whole without either indigo or cochineal, with the commonest ingredients, and consequently at a very moderate price. The composition of colors for painting, ultramarine, is as perfect as is made from lapis lazuli, and finally, removing the smell from painting oils and making the best oil of Provence from the oils of Navette, of Colsat, and from others, even the worst. I have in my hands all these productions made under my own eyes. I have had them undergo the most strict examinations, and seeing in these articles a profit which might mount up to millions, I have endeavored to take advantage of the friendship that this man has felt for me, and to learn from him all these secrets. He has given them to me, and he asks nothing for himself beyond a payment proportionate to the profits that might may accrue from them, it being understood that this shall be only when the profit has been made." So this letter creates a public record of Saint-Germain's alchemical skills. And whether Cobenzel was duped or was some sort of co-conspirator is not really known. Yeah, we don't have those actual samples he claimed to have to back any of it up. Well, and if, if anybody had really ever figured out how to turn lead into gold... Surely that would have spread like wildfire. Yeah. That, that or was, someone would still be plying that trade. Yeah. Well, you know, that was like the big alchemical quest for a really long time. Oh, yeah. Like, let's figure out how to turn base metals into gold. Yeah. As we know that does not really work. That's Antoine Lavoisier would have some things to say. Uh, <laughs> this letter, as you said, creates this public record. Uh, but the deal fell through just the same and Saint-Germain moved on. In the years after things went south in Belgium, he basically went all over the globe. Maybe not all over the globe. He went a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, in 1762, Saint-Germain was in St. Petersburg, just in time for Catherine the Great to seize the throne in a coup. And whether or not Saint-Germain was involved in that coup is actually a matter of some debate. There are people that will directly trace it to him and say that he, you know, as part of his greater mystical being has catalyzed many important world events, this being one of them. And others are like, no, he just happened to be there. After leaving Russia, he stayed out of high-profile circles. There were sightings of him in various places, but the official accounts of where he was are somewhere between sparse and non-existent. And then... uh Almost a decade later, uh, he turned up in Bavaria in 1774, and he was at this point traveling under the name of uh, Zorogi and feigning to be older than he had previously said he was, although he eventually uh, claimed to be the son of Prince Rakozi when he was caught in this deception. It seemed like he had maybe stolen someone's identity, uh, and then someone figured out that that could not be the case, and he said, oh, no, no, I'm an exiled, I'm a prince on the run. In 1776, he was peddling his chemistry wares in Germany, trying once again to get a government contract. And in spite of getting some positive interest for his non-mystical wares, he blew the deal once again. 
He started talking about all of his alchemy skills and how amazing he was, and that soured the negotiations. Another reason that Saint-Germain lost the deal uh, was contextual suspicion. He was not the only person in Europe claiming to be an alchemist, and enough nobles had been duped, uh, and in Germany only shortly before he came on the scene, that there was just a general reluctance to get involved in this kind of business. Yeah, there there had been other mystical people traipsing around getting money out of people. So naturally, you know, it was kind of a, we just got burned by this. Uh, you, uh, you might be real, I don't know. Uh, but while he was in Germany, the Count of Saint-Germain made a really important friend, and that was Prince Karl of Hesse-Cassel, governor of Schleswig-Holstein. And Prince Karl took in this wandering mystic and he set him up with a lab for performing his chemistry and alchemical experiments and, you know, lodging, set him up with a little house. He's been associated with the Rosicrucians, the Society of Asiatic Brothers, the Knights of Light, the Illuminati, the Order of the Templars, and has even been named as a co-founder of the Freemasons. But being secret societies, we naturally don't know a lot about what level of involvement he may have had, if any. Yeah, and some, uh, you know, some texts say, no, no, we want to disassociate from him. We just don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that he spent several years in Schleswig at this point with Prince Karl. And it's here that he's reported to have met his end. Uh, he died on February 27th of 1784 after catching pneumonia. The Count is said to have told Prince Carl that he left a note for him and his personal effects to be opened in the event of his death, but no such note was ever actually found. Yeah, and Carl wasn't there when he died. He was uh, away, and his personal physician uh, witnessed the death. But so when Carl came back, he was expecting a note and got none. Whoops. Oh, well. Uh, before we go on to kind of the, the post-mortem legend, do you want to take another moment uh, for an ad break? And let's get back to our story. So at this point in time in our story, the Count Saint-Germain is deceased. Uh, and as we said at the top of the podcast, sussing out how much of his story uh, and his legend regarding his metaphysical life is based in any sort of reality is difficult at the very best. He may have been nothing more than a compulsive liar, spinning up tale after tale to cover his humble or shameful past or to work his way into high society. He was definitely well-educated, able to speak many languages, able to hold his own in conversation with the highest rungs of society. He was definitely skilled as a, a musician and a composer and a successful chemist. And adding to the mythos surrounding the Count is also a, a little problem of names and conflation. Uh, first, the Count of Saint-Germain, as we said, met by, went by many aliases during his lifetime. And second, there were salon comedians in France doing Saint-Germain parodies. Uh, and it's entirely likely that some of the boasts that they made in jest eventually kind of made their way into the legend and kind of got confused over what was reality and what was comedy. Uh because he was, I mean, as much as many people were really blown away by him and thought he was amazing, there were also people that were like, you guys, he's a charlatan. Yeah. <laughs> and he became a joke to many people. Yeah. Well, when when you gave me this, this outline and I was reading through it for the first time, I was thinking, this sounds a whole lot like Casanova without the sex part. <laughs> which <It> was. <laughs> I know. Which makes it really funny because... Casanova just added to the confusion. Uh, not only would he sometimes impersonate the Count as a joke, 
His autobiography includes this description of the man that's completely counter to every other description of him by anyone else. Yeah, and uh, it's believed that that description, it like talks about him wearing these long, plain robes and stuff, just things that had nothing to do with him. Uh, and it's believed that that was added by an editor or that there was somewhere some sort of translation or trans... But this is believed to have been added by an editor or somehow, like lost a little bit in translation on the text. Or maybe Casanova did it on purpose as a joke. Also possible. Uh, <laughs> the, the sort of ironic comparison there is that uh, unlike Casanova, the Count of Saint-Germain was not associated with sex at all, really. He had He's often described as living a chaste life. So yeah, but he interesting counterpoints to one another. Yeah, in that but he regard. had this he had this weird con artist globe trottery oh, that yeah. is, is right up if, Casanova's alley. If we could get the two of them and the Baron of Arizona together, I think we would have a really spectacular historical meet and greet. Uh, and there have also been other people with the same title in history, uh, and sometimes their stories have been accidentally mingled with this Count of Saint Germain. So his. Legend has gotten really nebulous and there aren't any hard edges to it. It just kind of grows and ebbs and flows. And there are historians who believe that he really was a missing son of a tran- of Transylvanian royalty and that there was some kind of secret arrangement or signal that validated this with other royals, which explained his ability to just mix so easily with all the courts of Europe. Yeah, most... Uh non-noble-born people couldn't just stroll into, like, the court of France and end up being BFFs with the king. Uh, but he managed it, no problem. And he, you know, had contacts all over the place. But uh, to make the historical record and the story of Count Saint-Germain even trickier, there have also been plenty of people willing to assert that he lives on and they kind of want to believe and that kind of, you know, get fished into building a mythos. He's not a time lord. No, although there are people that have uh, suspected that he was a time traveler. I mean, there are people that believe. Yeah. I, I'm just going to go on the record and saying that, that I do not. <laughs> and he was also allegedly cited at a Masonic meeting the year after his death. It was just the beginning of all these post-mortem appearances. Yeah, uh, some will even claim that he was actually once Sir Francis Bacon and that he was either rejuvenated in some way or he was reincarnated as the Count. Plenty of people throughout the years have been really happy to use the nebulous details of his life to kind of fill in missing pieces of the puzzle for their own gain. So he's he's wound up in all kinds of uh, occult books and and crackpot theories. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, he's cited as having said things that he never said, but because there's such a weird series of gaps in his record, people will be like, oh no, this was in that time when there isn't a lot, but I know, I have the texts. Uh, And there have even been people who have become convinced that they actually are the Count reincarnated or that they're channeling the deceased mystic. One of the quotes that usually comes up in relation to his great standing is Voltaire's line in a letter to Frederick the Great, in which he calls the Count, quote, a man who knows everything and who never dies. Yeah, this gets brought up all the time. People are like, no, this is the man that Voltaire said this about. Okay, that sounds really good, but it ignores the source because Voltaire was known for his sarcasm and it ignores the context because in this same series of correspondence between uh, Voltaire and Frederick the Great, Frederick refers to the Count as un conte pour rire, which translates literally to a story for laughing. He's calling him a joke. Like these two are basically kind of having a gossipy 
what a train wreck discussion about this guy. <laughs> and so it's kind of quoted in a way that I'm confident Voltaire never intended. And of course, there are people who think that he himself was just deluded and believed all of these legends about himself that had been circulating while he was alive. Yeah, I mean, we in the first thing that we read about him uh, in the Horace's letters, they say that he's mad. I mean, lots of people describe him as a madman. So I think there's, you know, some credence to that. Uh, one interesting note that we'll kind of conclude with is that while Saint-Germain uh, was, you know, he's described sometimes as boastful, but it seems like he was really pretty careful in his conversations with people to never state outright any of these extraordinary claims that are often attributed to him, he would drop hints. He was like a pro at conversation manipulation. And he would never say he had an elixir of youth, but he would just tell people he was very old and then mention that he had this lab and that he worked on things. And then he would direct the conversation elsewhere and people would be like, ooh, what is he hiding? He he does have the elixir of life. Uh, (laughs) He kind of was really good at seeding his own reputation, it seems. Which to me suggests a level of savvy that is beyond what a deluded madman would be able to come up with. But we'll never know for sure. And that's just my conjecture on it. Yeah. So that is the Count of Saint-Germain. And there are so many stories of him in addition to those that we've relayed. Uh, you could really lose many, many days combing the internet for various. If you do a search on him, you'll get a nice combo of historical reference and also Crack pottery. Believers. <laughs> People that really want to believe that he's out there somewhere. Cockamamie theories. Yeah. Uh, and that's the story of the count. Do you have a story of some listener mail? I do. Uh, and this particular piece of mail comes from our listener, uh, Lara. And it is in reference to foot binding. And she talks about it uh, in relation to an event in her own grandmother's life. She says, I wanted to write in response to the recent show about foot binding. I was struck by similarities between the experiences of the older Chinese women and my German Mennonite grandmother. I've attached a photo of my grandmother and grandfather on their wedding day, which is lovely. Uh, from the 1920s to the 1960s, Mennonites wore, quote, plain dress, cape dresses for women. And she explains that a cape dress was a special dress with an extra piece of cloth in the front to cover up the breasts and a covering, which was a lace head covering with bonnet strings. And men wore plain coats, usually a dark colored coat with a high neck. Dress was very much part of church membership, and the bishops spent a lot of time regulating dress, and women like my grandmother spent a lot of time figuring out subversive ways to wear their coverings, like letting the strings hang down their back rather than putting them in the front, which was considered especially daring for some reason. Lara does not know why. Uh... And she says, I'm not really trying to draw a comparison between the permanently damaging tradition of foot binding and Mennonite plain dress. But I think that the older Chinese women's ambiguous feeling about the changing traditions was very similar to my grandmother's mixed feelings about choosing to stop wearing plain clothes. In the 1960s, when other women burned their bras, side note from Tracy and I, there's some debate about whether or not that actually happened. Most people say it did not. There was more of a freedom trash can where bras went. Yes. Uh, but just the same, we wanted to acknowledge that as not always being a, an accurate depiction of what was going on. Some Mennonite women, according to this letter of Lara's, uh, burned their coverings. My grandmother didn't burn her covering, but she did stop wearing it. She once returned to her home church, which was very conservative. And on Sunday morning, the preacher preached a sermon especially about her and her lack of traditional dress. Uh, that's a really, you know, 
fascinating insight. I mean, it's it's easy, I think, when you're kind of reading through it to go, of course, they were, this was their standard, and then they were told it wasn't the standard, and that's a difficult mental break. But it's kind of a nice comparison to explain, like, this is another person who went through sort of a similar thing. As she says, it's not the same as a, a disfiguring, you know, permanent thing, but it's like... It gets you question her grandmother questioned this her whole life over yeah. whether that was the right thing and whether dropping that tradition, you know, was in some way a bad choice. So it's an interesting cultural insight, I think. If you would like to write to us and share any interesting cultural insights or parallels to things we've talked about or anything else you would like to chat about, uh, you can write us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook.com slash mist in history. On Twitter at Mist in History, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. You can also visit us on our website, which I know this address is going to be a shocker, but it's mistinhistory.com. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, uh, you can go to How Stuff Works and do a search for alchemy. And what you'll actually get is how Isaac Newton worked, because there is a little alchemical dabbling there as well. Uh, and if you'd like to learn about almost anything else your brain can conjure, you can do that at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC... Mac or write to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.